if you've ever been uh, around the lake or uh, on the ocean and you've seen sailing vessels, whether it's a small sailboat or a big, tall ship, whatever sailing vessel you see as it has its sails extended and it's powered by that wind that's driving it, there's a really important thing that it needs to have as well, and that's a rudder. That rudder is what directs the ship. See, a ship without a rudder isn't free. It's carried along by whatever whims of the wind and waves drive it. And it can be enslaved by that. And it might seem like it's free from the enslavement of the pilot telling it where to go, but it has to have that direction. Otherwise, it just goes wherever. And eventually it ends up shipwrecked. We're a little like that. Our focus, whatever that focus might be, is the rudder that steers us. It keeps us from being enslaved by the tyranny of the urgent, the moment that screams at us and pulls at us. So much of what we deal with in our life today is the captivity, the bondage of the now, of the short-sighted view. When we see all of those shiny things of this world, we hear all the loud noises and they take our attention away. We miss out on that strong focus that drives us. One of the things about a rudder with a ship is it has to be actually steered. Just having a rudder isn't really important. You need, it's important, it's not the key thing. You need to have a pilot steering that ship, directing that rudder to get to the right destination. Otherwise, you may get somewhere in a hurry and it may be the entirely wrong place. The same is true for us. If we're going to be free to be who we're supposed to be, to live the life we were meant to live, to accomplish what we've been created to accomplish, we need not only to have focus, but more importantly, we need to have the right focus. Otherwise, we may have a rudder that's steering us in an entirely wrong direction. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts, this Impact World series. And as we look at this today... Um, we're going to be finishing up, really, the story that we looked at last week. Last week, as we were uh, engaged in chapter 4, we took this whole chunk of what uh, Peter and John were doing as they healed the lame beggar. They're on their way to a prayer meeting at the temple. And uh, as they um, <clears throat> as they... We'll have to get rid of the mic. Sorry, I had a little technical issue. Better? Thanks for your subtlety. That's not subtle anymore, is it? Kind of, kind of wrecked that. Okay. My son's a communication major. I make a living talking to people. We should be better at this. All right. Is that any better? Is it an improved sound? Better? Dennis, I'm sorry for what I've done here. So, all right. 
um, as we are working through the book of Acts. Last week we talked about, uh, wow, now it seems really hot. This is what happens when people text me in the middle of a sermon. Before we continue and do anything else, I need to be undistracted. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, um, I don't know. I don't know what's required in my mind to be where you need it to be. But I know that, one way or another, this is your moment. This is your time. We've set apart this time on Sunday morning so that we could hear from you. Not so we could hear from me or from the band. This isn't about some kind of consumer Christianity. You've given us your word. You're divinely inspired, perfect, flawless, authoritative word. Lord, please today speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Give us together the clarity to be able to hear and receive what you have for us in your word, undistracted by anything else. Lord, we recognize that the enemy is actively working to try to deceive and distract and discourage us, even here in this place, In the name of Christ, by his delegated authority, we bind and cast out anything that might exalt itself above the knowledge of you, that might keep us from being where you want us to be, hearing what you want us to hear, knowing what you want us to know. Father, in this moment, I ask that you would change my heart and the hearts of all who are gathered here, that you alone would matter pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who is the supreme reality. Amen. As we um, get into the text today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, and really what we're seeing is the the epilogue, so to speak, the the culmination, the resolution of last week's story, Uh, but it seemed appropriate for us to preach through this in two separate pieces. As we read through the text last week, it brought us to this place. So I want to read through the text again today. And we'll read this whole chapter so that we can see how this fits together. It's important for us, as we understand the scriptures, to understand them in their context, according to their genre, and in a natural reading. Because that's how they were intended by those who write them. As we look at the book of Acts, we have... Not a gospel narrative, but a historical narrative. It's an extension of the gospels. It's an extension, really, of the book of Luke. This is sort of Luke volume 2. What happens after the church, uh, after Christ ascends and the church is born? So if you will follow along with me, I'll be reading from the, from the New International Version, from Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking <clears throat> speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John were went back to their own people and reported that the chief priests and the elders, uh, all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. May God bless the reading of His Word together. Now as we see this story, it's coming directly out of chapter 3 and, and Peter and John healing the lame beggar. And as they do this, the people are gathering. They're gathering to see this miracle. And the miracle leads to Peter saying, look, you think this is some cool thing. You're here amazed at us because of this thing that happened. It has nothing to do with us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Everything is about Jesus. Then, as we pick up here in chapter 4, they get arrested, and the, the leaders get to the point, to the heart of the matter, which becomes the, the climax of that story. And what we're seeing today is actually part of that. But the climax of that story is in Acts 4.12. There is no other name. It's only Jesus. Everything is about Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. This is the supreme reality, the central reality of all reality. Everything in the universe hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the story that God is unfolding. Redeeming His people for His glory. Now, as we see it today... We're picking up right after what took place. They get threatened. They're cast out. The leaders who don't believe in the resurrection, so they're really bothered by this Jesus thing. Healing's one thing, but the Jesus thing, that's got to go. So we can't really do anything to stop what people are seeing. Here is a man who was crippled and is now changed. And he is able to live a life that he could not live on his own. We can't deny it. But we've got to shut these guys up. So we're going to threaten them. We're going to give them all these you know, horrible things that we're going to do, put them in jail, put them out of the synagogue, and so on. And now, in confronting them, they go to Peter and John and say, what exactly is this about? And it gets laid out, the clear presentation of the gospel. They get released in verse 23. And that's where we are today. Notice, there is a change in where they are. Our core reality for today is that focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. Now, as we, as we see this unfold, not only here but throughout the rest of the book of Acts, what we often call the Acts of the Apostles may well be changed in title to the Acts of the Holy Spirit because all of this hinges on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the disciples of Christ. 
first in the 12 and the 120 who are gathered, then in the 3,000, then in the 5,000. And as it continues to spread and impact the world, it's the Holy Spirit moving in the followers of Christ that's doing the work. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. The Holy Spirit enabled Peter and John and the others to see the reality of Christ as supreme and more precious than anything. And that changed everything. These early disciples, having seen Christ crucified, having seen Christ resurrected, having seen Christ ascended, and now many, many more people who may not have seen it, but have been party to it because of the witness of of those who did, these people have understood that God has ordained their every step for His glory, which is their ultimate good. The glory of God is ultimately the good for us. When we get it, we get it. When we connect the dots and begin to understand the whys of life, we gain a clarity that otherwise eludes us. Sometimes why can be the most dangerous question that we ask. It's also the most crucial question. If we don't understand why, then we can't really function effectively. We might go through the motions. We might uh, do what we're told and accomplish things by rote memorization. So I think most of us can recognize the difference between that Uh, that passion for Christ, and the religious experience of doing what you're told, binding back your behavior, quoting the Apostles' Creed every week. There's nothing wrong with that. But apart from the reality of Christ in your life transforming you, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, it's all for naught. Now, you may, if you're a sports fan, which I know in this congregation we have a number of sports fans, or if you're a music fan, you may be able to understand these things a little bit differently. I've seen a lot of athletes, high school, younger, we see them in college, we see them at the pro level, who are able to do great things, have tremendous talent, great ability, but they only do what they're told to do. They do all of the right things, but they don't, as we like to say as coaches, think the game. I have a, a kid on our, our rocket team who uh, is a good, he's a good athlete, good runner. But what I love about this kid is he gets it. He's the kid I want to have the ball when we need a first down. Because he might not be the best runner on the team, although he's pretty good. But he knows how to find that first down marker. He knows when we need to actually score. And he's able to think through the game. A musician who can play through a sheet of music is one thing. You can read all the notes and you can make all the sounds and you can follow all the timing. But if you don't feel it, if if you're not able to think the music, to breathe it out through your experience of that music, it becomes a hollow exercise. And you've met all the requirements. You've checked all the boxes. But have you really engaged in the music? That same thing is true here. And what we see is a shift from these primarily religious people. Remember, at this time, the church is almost entirely Jewish. 
all of these disciples that are starting this whole thing out are Jewish, almost to a person. Those who are gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost are there because they are Jewish. Some are converted Jews, but they're there for the purpose of celebrating the religious festival of Pentecost. They're all already engaged in that. This is pretty important for us to recognize because the culture of Israel was specifically theocentric. Even when we didn't get it, it was still the center of what Israel was. In the Old Testament, all the laws are based on God as the center, God as the ruler. Everything that happened in their ethics happened with the perspective of God as the center. But there's a big shift that takes place as these followers of Christ, already religious, begin to see a new reality. Because they recognize the reality of Christ's death and resurrection on their behalf. Because they've now been filled with the Holy Spirit, they have a clarity that they couldn't have otherwise. They're able to see and grasp the why. Now the things that happen to them in life are no longer just random events. Oh, why me? Why, why did this happen to me? That's no longer the question. At least that's not the tone. They may be asking, why did this happen to me? But not because it's about me. But what is God doing through this? They recognize His sovereignty in accomplishing His purposes through it. Now, as they are working through their situation, I think there are a lot of things we can observe for our situation. Notice, as we get to this, we'll see the heart of it. It really, it really kind of comes to a head. Uh, following their prayer, or in their prayer, they pray for God to, to do some things here and to change them and to make them bold. And then in verse 31, we have this amazing action that's easy to pass over. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, like an earthquake. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the culmination of all of this is that they spoke the word of God boldly. Then it's summarized in what's going on, the, the characterization of the church. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. We might say that differently. The more tightly we cling to Christ, the more loosely we hold the concerns of this world. The more tightly we cling to Christ, the more loosely we hold the concerns of this world. Now, as we see this play out in their lives, you're going to see some impact on them. The presence of the Holy Spirit gave the church clarity and focus that impact, impacted a variety of things here. We're going to see how it impacts their perspective, their priorities, their prayer, their preaching, their power, their partnership, and their possessions. All right, first let's take a look at how it impacts their perspective. It impacts their perspective. They began to see from an eternal point of view. What they once saw is not the same as what they see now. Notice that the first thing that happens 
is Paul and John, or Peter and John, sorry, Peter and John, immediately upon their release, having, having rejected the threats of the leadership, having said, well, you, you tell us what's better. Should we obey God or should we obey you? Obviously a rhetorical question. Nobody is going to say you should obey us and not God. But when there's a conflict, their perspective has shifted so that it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. And now as they're getting into this, this release, this freedom, they, the first thought is not, wow, boy, we really escaped that. But let's go to our people and tell them what God has done. Look at what happened. Hey, they threatened us. You know what? I got to tell them about Jesus. Their first thought was a together thought. We're going to see the theme of unity and togetherness not only today, but throughout the book of Acts. As the church moves, the church moves as one. The presence of the Holy Spirit gave the church clarity and focus that impacted their perspective. Shifting our point of view to an eternal perspective, what Chuck Swindoll likes to call a long view, allows us to reckon reality rightly. It allows us to understand the difference between what seems real and what actually is real. Between what seems true and what actually is true. That change in perspective allows us to see it differently. Then those false but shiny and loud things have much less grip on our minds and hearts. They're, they're not burdened with these things the same way. Their perspective has shifted. And they're beginning to see things through the eyes of God. Now notice this plays out as they see God's sovereign hand through it. On the release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Notice how they prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, before we even get into the rest of it, they address him as sovereign Lord. Sovereign has to do with the fact that he has all authority. Lord has to do with the fact that I recognize his authority. He is the Lord already. The question is whether he is my Lord, whether I've submitted to that authority. As sovereign Lord, they are saying in this immediate address, the first thing they say, is acknowledging that God not only has all authority, but He holds all power. He can back it up. And they express that as they recount His deeds in praise. You made the heavens, the earth, the sea, everything in them. Ah, Lord God, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great power. And they go on to say, not only did you make all of these things, but then you spoke. And you spoke through your Holy Spirit, through your servant. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. 
Some of your translations may say against his Messiah, against his Christ. That's what anointed one means. Whenever you hear the term Messiah, that's the Hebrew version of the term Christ, which is the Greek version of the term Messiah, both of which mean anointed one, the chosen one. So as Christ is God's Messiah, David was speaking even then, not only about his particular situation in Israel, as the enemies of God lift themselves above God and oppose God, and all the Gentile nations, the nations who are not Israel, come against God and against his anointed one, which is the king, King David, but also foreshadows, prophesies, what God will do later in the Messiah. All of what happened in the past is given to instruct us. So as Peter lays this out, what he's saying is God, not just Peter, all of them, as they're doing this together, they're praying together as if with one voice. They're addressing God as sovereign, authoritative, and powerful, and recognizing that God called his shot a long time ago. God knows what's going on, and he knows that the nations rage against him and against his Messiah. They connect the dots to recent history, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Notice, this is everybody. You've got the leaders, Herod, the Jewish king, so-called, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, together with the Gentiles, the Romans, and also God's own people, the people of Israel, right here in the city of David. It's significant that he says in this city as he quotes David's psalm and now points out that this is happening even here in David's city as they conspired against your holy servant Jesus, your Christ, your anointed one. Notice how these thoughts come together in verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is where their perspective begins to change. So they knew God as sovereign Lord. They knew the scriptures that prophesied these things. They knew what David had said about David. Now they have connected it with the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit to open their minds to the scriptures. And their perspective is, God, all this stuff that they did, all they did was to do your will without knowing it. They carried out your plans without knowing it. They thought in their rebellion against you, which is sin and which they will answer for, just as Judas, same thing, are carrying out God's purposes unknowingly. Even in sin, even in rebellion, God continues to work through that. Their perspective has changed. They now begin to see from an eternal point of view. And because of that, the presence of the Holy Spirit gave them clarity and focus that impacted their priorities. They began to value what Christ valued above all else. So this shift in perspective shifted their priorities as well. They began to value what Christ valued above all else. Shifting our perspective to an eternal one, seeing reality for what it actually is, causes us to change our priorities. 
We begin to place a different value on things by the power of the Holy Spirit. We begin to differentiate between what seems important and what actually is important. Then the things that once once carried so much weight, that caused us so much stress, so much worry, begin to have less power to keep us shackled to them. Notice in light of their new perspective how their priorities shift. Right? Verse 29, they're praying for their needs. And I don't know about you, but my expectation, this is one of those places where there's a surprise. Anytime we're reading a text of Scripture, we want to be able to, to enter into the wise. And when we see something there, we should always be looking in that text for, for that thing that is surprising. What about this, if I were reading it for the first time, if I throw away my preconceived notions, my presuppositions, what about this seems surprising? And for me, one of the things that really struck me as surprising is verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants, what, to overcome it? To escape it? See, that's what I would pray. Lord, consider their threats. You are powerful and you are sovereign. You have known this from the beginning. You control these things. Lord, control it now. Take this away from me. Get me out of this situation. Father, protect us from these corrupt leaders who are threatening us for preaching the gospel. Father, take that away. But that's not what they pray. Surprisingly, they don't pray for freedom for deliverance for god to take it from them to protect them lord consider their threats hear their threats be aware of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness not enable your servants to withstand it not enable your servants to get through it or to escape it, but to speak, to preach, to proclaim with great boldness in the midst of and through it. They're not gripped any longer by the things that would have gripped them just a short time ago. Remember, it's, it's only about two months that have gone by since Peter flat out denied he even knew Jesus. Same guy. Now, being restored by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, his perspective has changed, his priorities have changed. Notice, he's not praying for safety or for comfort, but all of them together, perhaps Peter leading the way in the words here, that seems to be pretty normal for him, but all of them as one, praying, Lord, you see what's going on. Make it work for you. Let us be bold in the face of all opposition. The presence of the Holy Spirit gave the church clarity and focus that also impacted their prayer. They began to pray for focus more than for deliverance. Being freed from 
their previous priorities, what they saw as important before was no longer important. What they valued now was what Christ valued. And if it was important to Jesus, then it was more important to them than anything else. Would that we could say the same. But a changed perspective led to changed priorities, and the changed priorities then began to impact their prayers. No longer were they praying as they might have otherwise for deliverance. Now, probably you and I can relate to that. How often this week have you prayed for God to get you out of something? God, help me with this financial situation. Lord, help me deal with this person. You know, you know what I'm talking about. As I'm going through all of the things I'm going through, Lord, can you just take away this sickness? Lord, can you, can you just help me through this situation? Can you make it better for me? Can you deliver me? They're not praying that here. When we change what we see as important, it changes the shape of our prayers. Not that we don't pray for our needs. Don't misunderstand. We see prayers for our needs constantly. Christ's model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer so often is praying for our needs, but the focus is much more, the balance begins to tip much more to reflect our newfound focus on God's eternal purpose and our mission to serve others and glorify Him. I, I don't want you to hear that we should not pray for our own needs. That we should not pray for deliverance when deliverance is needed. But that no longer, for the Christ-focused, becomes the primary priority. So the prayers, which are reflecting those priorities, are then redirected, refocused, so that we are no longer praying primarily for ourselves, but for the mission, for God's glory, that we would serve others, that God would change us through it, that He would give us opportunities. Their prayer was not that God would take away the persecution, but that He would make them strong in the persecution, that He would let them be bold. And that type of prayer then also transforms their preaching the clarity they receive from the Holy Spirit impacts their preaching. I might also put, if I were writing in, in notes there, I might write next to it, proclamation. It's not just for those who stand be behind pulpits. They began to, verb, to view persecution as a pulpit. It impacted their thought. Their focus now becomes doing the will of God, so it impacts their preaching they don't just preach when it's convenient. Later on, Paul would say, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. When it seems like the right moment, and when everything seems to line up against you, be ready all the time. They began to view persecution as a pulpit. In other words, every hardship was an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, Peter, at the miracle of healing this lame beggar, preaches the gospel. The crowds gather. He clarifies it for them. Many believe. Many don't. But he gets to be even more specific. There's a, a greater passion in it when he's preaching following the arrest. 
When the leaders, those who are more educated in religion, when they're facing them, now Peter is able to lay it out in a very direct and specific way, culminating in salvation is found in no one else. There's no salvation in Israel. There's no salvation in religion. There's no salvation in a rabbi, a teacher, a preacher. There's no salvation in real life. There's salvation only in the name of Jesus Christ. No other name is given by by which we must be saved. The persecution gave that opportunity. They began to see it differently. Their preaching then came from a new perspective, a new priorities, a new and refocused prayer. This Holy Spirit clarity also impacted their power. They began to see mighty works as a means to an end. They began to see mighty works as a means to an end. Now, most of us here are probably reading from the NIV. Many other translations, uh, I think the ESV does this, the Amplified Bible does this. In verse 29 and 30, they're connected. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. The Amplified would say, while these things are happening, while these mighty signs are done by your hand. I love the way the Amplified words it. It refers to these signs and wonders as attesting miracles. Attesting miracles. These mighty signs, these miraculous things had a purpose. Now, if you go back through, if you'll remember when we walked through Luke, or you look at the other Gospels, there was a tendency for the people, including the disciples, even the twelve, to be filled with awe at the signs and wonders. Right? Do you remember that? A lot of, nod your head if you remember hearing words like they were amazed or they were in awe. Right? So, as they saw this, they were in awe of what Jesus did. They were in awe of the miracles. But now that awe has changed. It's not like that they are less amazed. It's that they see the purpose behind it. Jesus made it clear as he was performing the miracles over and over again that the point of the miracles was the message. They were affirming or confirming what God was saying. This happens, we see this in an increased frequency at times when God's operation shifts. When Elijah is is making very specific um, prophecies and proclamations to the people of Israel, God attests them by miraculous signs. We see that whenever the prophets are giving messages, and they need to be singled out by God. Moses, when he's giving the law, has miraculous things happen that don't happen the rest of the time. But they happen in these crucial moments. God's capable of them at all times. Why don't miracles happen all the time? Because of the purpose of the miracle. They recognize here that the purpose of the miracles that they are doing, the mighty works... They're not the end. It's not just so that we can go around and be cool and gather a following. and Oh, wow, let's have this powerful service where everybody comes and we get healed and we're going to take care of all these things. That's not the point. In fact, 
They never do that. We don't see the big revival meetings that have become so prominent in the last 50 to 70 years, maybe the last 150 years in the United States. In fact, we did see them in the latter half of the 19th century where people would gather big meetings to have people come in so that they can have great healings and great wonders. Great opportunity for charlatans and hucksters to come in and bilk people out of their money. If you'll just give money to this ministry, then we'll give you healing. Put your hands on the radio. And I say that with a healthy degree of mockery. Because the reality is, if that's the focus, then we've missed the point. The miracles in Scripture are prevalent, but with a purpose. God does what He does to further the gospel, not just so that you can have stuff, not just so that your temporal needs can be met in the healing of your sickness, the assuaging of your grief. That's not what this is about. God is not primarily concerned with your happiness. I know some of you are ready, probably ready to walk out. God is not primarily concerned with whether or not you and I are happy. His goal for us in this life is not that we can have our best life now. His goal for us is holiness. That He would receive glory through a people set apart for Himself, characterized by holiness and love. That's what He has always wanted. That's what He will always want. And everything else is moving us in that direction. The goal for us in this life is to become more and more through suffering and adversity and also through joy and prosperity. To become in these things more and more like Christ. But our inheritance is not in this world. Our inheritance is eternal. presence of the Holy Spirit gave the church clarity and focus that not only impacted these things, it impacted their partnership. Now as they began to see mighty works as a means to an end, this changed perspective that they had meant that they were more concerned with God's working to bring glory to Himself and make the message efficacious, that the message would do what it was there to do because of the signs and wonders. But there's a tendency when we have these things, as we will see later on in Acts, as we see later in Paul's letters, to become jealous. Now why is Peter out front? Man, don't you remember? He was the one that denied Jesus. Why does he get to be the leader? Why does he get to be the one with the spotlight on him? Later, as they're using their gifts of the Spirit, there rises up within them jealousy among one another. Jealousy is never from God. It's not. And you cannot be focused on Christ if you're jealous of somebody else. That's not how it works. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. In their partnership, 
they began to see themselves as united in Christ and in their purpose. They began to see themselves as united in Christ and in their purpose. In other words, they were being freed from self-focused living. They no longer had the kinds of jealousy that would be normal in their flesh. Interestingly, we'll see that jealousy creep up later on. But here, they're not comparing anybody to anybody else. After this meeting happens and and the, the prayer shakes the place and the Holy Spirit allows them to speak the word of God boldly, we see this description in verses 32 and following. It's a description not unlike Acts 2, uh, verses 42 to 47. It's a description of what's going on. In light of everything that we've just read, in light of the changed perspective, priorities, prayer, preaching, and power, what does it look like? And we have a description of their partnership here. They began to see themselves as united in Christ, united in their purpose, freed from self-focused living, focused on the reality of Christ, so therefore the lesser things don't have the same kind of pull on them. And it reads like this, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Then we get a picture of Barnabas doing this. That will become significant later. It's really a bridge into what we see in chapter 5, so we'll talk about that uh, later on. They're one in heart and mind. Why are they one in heart and mind? How does that play out for them? It's because their focus is not on themselves. All the fighting that we have, all the arguments, if you are married... You have arguments. If you don't have arguments, you're not married. It's part of it. If you grew up with siblings, now I will say my father-in-law, Gary Cole, never once argued with his siblings growing up because he didn't have any. That's the only way not to argue with your siblings. Amen? If you have relationships, you're going to have, of any level of intimacy, if there's any depth to it, you're going to have arguments But every single time, those things come about. I'm not talking about disagreements. We have a a common goal and we disagree about how to get there. When we have the fights, the arguments, the quarreling, it comes from my clinging to my point of view, my perspective. Who's right? I'm going to be right. I'm going to fight for being right. Who gets the stuff? There's one cookie left. Who gets it? The answer is daddy. I just want to point that out. That's not the attitude of Christ, is it? 
The attitude that we see among them is the attitude of Christ that they are willing to put others' needs ahead of themselves. Turn very quickly. You can keep Acts marked there. Uh, but, but turn very quickly to Philippians chapter 2. And we see a picture of this. Now Philippians is written many, many years later by the Apostle Paul who hasn't even come into the story yet. We'll get to him in a little while. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church which at the time of our story in Acts does not exist. Later, when the church at Philippi is planted, and they're a good, strong, healthy church, Paul says this to them. Starting with verse 27 of chapter 1, that will lead into chapter 2 from there. Verse 27 of Philippians 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the focus, by the way. That's what every single Christian should always be focused on. Not what do I have to do, not what should I never do, but how do I live a life that fits who I am in Christ? How do I live a life that honors the sacrifice the Son of God made for me to pay for my sin? Whatever happens, regardless of whether you're persecuted or not, Paul happens to be imprisoned as he says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. Remember that togetherness we mentioned earlier. You stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Faith there, as you read it, it's not the... the Believing faith we see as a verb. When we see the faith, we're talking about the doctrine, the teaching of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, listen to this perspective, my goodness, it has been granted to you like a gift on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. What a joy, what a privilege. We don't think of it that way in our flesh, but in the Holy Spirit we recognize that we have been granted the privilege of being able to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance or in form as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the attitude that Paul is saying all Christians should have. If you are a Christ follower, <laughs> I remember learning in 
in Sunday school when I was a little kid, the acronym for joy. Anybody learn that when you were young? Joy equals Jesus, then others, then you. Jesus first. Then our attention is focused on serving others, and I'm third. I come last. And when I get that perspective, then I discover a new level of joy that I'm not capable of having in my flesh. This change in perspective and priorities and prayer and preaching and power and partnership leads them to a new understanding of their possessions. And they begin to be freed from the trappings of this world. The impact of the Holy Spirit's clarity on their possessions is that they begin to be freed from the trappings of this world. In other words, the power of stuff no longer held them captive. Back in Acts chapter 4, they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they have. Some other translations are a little clearer perhaps. But what we see here is not, it's not a government program. It's not an economic system. It's not communism or socialism or any other ism. It's individual people by their own voluntary choice saying, whatever I have, I've been given by God. Therefore, I'm going to hold on to it loosely because I can't take it with me anyway. They still, and we see throughout here, they continue to have their own possessions. They don't just willy-nilly get rid of all their stuff. What they do instead is from time to time, some translations make that clearer than others, periodically, as appropriate, they draw from what they have even to the point of sacrifice. I got two fields, I don't need that field, I'm going to sell that field, I'm going to bring the money in, as Joseph does. I'm going to bring the money in because people have needs. I'm doing fine. Because I'm doing fine, that gives me the opportunity to take care of others. <laughs> One of my favorite things from Dave Ramsey, the economic guru, the finance guru, so to speak. I am uncomfortable even using the word guru, but it's fun to say, so I keep saying guru. But Dave Ramsey likes to always say, Live, if you live like no one else now, you can live like no one else later. But people often leave out the last part of it. When you get to the end of his Financial Peace University, the last session is on giving. And he says, ultimately, specifically as Christ followers, ultimately, our purpose in wealth is to bless others and honor and glorify God. So the culmination, the fulfillment of that that credo of live like no one else so you can live like no one else is live like no one else now. In other words, be conservative with your money, be wise in your savings, debt is dumb, get passionate like a, like a gazelle escaping a cheetah about getting out of debt. Be passionate about that so you're not enslaved to those creditors. But live like no one else now so that later on, you can live like no one else. Because you're financially free. You don't have those same obligations. When you get to a place when you want to retire, you're able to retire. And not scrambling around, being a burden on, on those who come after you. But you are able to do this because of the choices you make now. 
Live like no one else now, so you can live like no one else later, ultimately, so that you can give like no one else. Because the more you have, the more you can give. But here's what ends up happening a lot of the time. And this is, this is what you might call the dark side of capitalism. Selfishness. So we like to pretend we're following that. Oh, I'm, the more I have, the more I can give. That's great. Except for you have, and you ain't given. You're missing the point. It's not if I get more, then I can give more and still keep increasing my lifestyle. That's not what we see here. It's as there is need, we take care of everybody else. Speaking specifically of the church, this is about the brothers and sisters. Why? Because of what we saw in the partnership piece. We're united. We're one. We are family. And when family is need, family takes care of its own. Amen? How many of you have people in your family that you're just going to turn out, yeah, sorry, Mom, thanks for giving me life, but you're on your own with your finances. That's a horrible person. If you're offended by that, then I'm probably talking to you without realizing how many of us don't feed our children because we got to keep our cable bill going? We've got, we got, we got to get cable. That's more important. Kids need new shoes for school. Ah, sorry, kids. You don't get new shoes for school because daddy needs a new truck. It starts to hit home when we talk about possessions, doesn't it? I get a lot fewer amens when I talk about that stuff. There's a reason for it. There's a reason that Jesus talks about our wealth more than virtually any other topic. Why? By the way, he never condemns wealth. But he commends living like this. Holding on loosely. Money is a tool. What good does it do for you to keep on hoarding tools in your toolbox? You've got the greatest workshop in the world in your garage. You never make anything, you never fix anything, but man, you got the tools. That's what you have money for. Everything that you own, <laughs> you thought you got it because of your hard work. You got it because God ordained for you to be allowed to have it. Everything you have, everything I have, is from the hand of God. Doesn't it make sense that we would use it for God's purposes? This is why, and I don't mean to get off on this, we'll get to giving in another week, in another time. But this is why the tithe is established early in the Old Testament. Before the law is given, we see the tithe. Abraham tithing to Melchizedek outside of the law. Why is this? Why is the Sabbath established in Genesis 1? Because we need to recognize that all we have is God's. It's not our strength. It's not our smarts. It's not our ability. It's God providing for us. And everything that He gives to us is for us to use to take care of others, to honor Him with our wealth. We could talk about that more at another time. But notice what happens to them. They begin to be freed from the trappings of this world. It's not that they're going through thinking, oh man, I, I really like that and I really want to hang on to that, but... Oh, I better give it to the Lord. 
Guess I'll take it to the apostles. We read that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. They're cheerful because they're not clinging to their stuff. They're not holding on to it as if it matters. And this only happens when all of these other things we see in this passage happen. When our perspective changes, then our priorities change. And when our perspective and our priorities change, and we begin to see the partnership of the family, the body of Christ, all one, what hurts you hurts me, what helps you helps me, then I no longer see my possessions as mine to cling to. But they belong to God for use in the family. Then God gets the glory. And it doesn't hurt me to give things away. Because it's just stuff. And I'm not shackled to that anymore. They began to be freed from the trappings of this world. It's not just money. Man, it's all the loud and shiny things of this world. It's all the things that seem so important, that seem so crucial, so very, very urgent. But focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. The more tightly we cling to Christ, the more loosely we hold the concerns of this world. The more we recognize God's sovereign hand in the fire and the flood, we recognize that He's faithful forever, that He's sovereign over us, not just, and I think we get this confused sometimes in our, in our idea of God's faithfulness, it's not just that God takes care of us as if we are the center of everything. It's that God is sovereign over us. He is faithful and He keeps His word and He does take care of us. But we are not the point. It is about the infinite glory of God. And God providing for us brings glory to His name. His glory is our highest good. Everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is small and pale and hollow and weak. And the more we see it that way, the more we begin to reckon reality rightly, to get this in our minds, the less stress we have, the more joy we have, the fewer fears we have, the less tightly we cling to the things of this world. As we close, I want to draw your attention to the memory verse for this week. John 8, 32. Jesus, Jesus spends a lot of time in the middle of John, culminating in chapter 15. But, but here also, this idea of knowing Him, abiding in Him. Right before this verse, it says, if, if you abide in me, if, if you love me, if you cling to me, then you're going you're gonna to do the things that I call you to do. If you want to walk with Jesus, then you need to actually walk with Jesus. Not talk about it. Not think, boy, I've got warm, fuzzy thoughts about Jesus, and I've got great Christian t-shirts, and, and I only listen to Chris Tomlin music all the time, and, and so I'm better than, than other people somehow. Boy, that's a Pharisee attitude, isn't it? 
It's not about all of the warm, fuzzy stuff. If you want to walk with Christ, if you want to experience the power of Christ, the joy and peace that comes along with it, if you want to be free from the junk in this world, you need to know the truth. And you will know the truth when you follow His commandments. When you obey Him, not because it's a checklist you have to make, but because He is the one you love, and what pleases Him pleases you. You'll find yourself increasingly freed from the junk of this world as you turn your eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth, they grow strangely dim. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Father God, you have called us to be like your Son. You have called us to live in unity together, to adopt the attitude that he, is, that he has demonstrated for us, to empty ourselves of ourselves, so that as we focus on the reality of Christ, all the lesser things, all the junk of this world, all the things that seems that, that seems so important to us. Sometimes it's the beauty of this world. Sometimes it's the, the dark underbelly of this world. None of that has as much hold on us when our eyes are lifted high, when our perspective is eternal, when our priorities align with the priorities of Christ. So Father, be glorified in our time together. And change us, help us by the reading of your word today to be able to change our focus, to see Christ for who he really is, to gain the clarity that only your Holy Spirit gives us as we surrender to it, to you. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.
like to remind you of our membership meeting uh, in just a few moments. Uh, so if you're a member, please do stick around, cast your vote. We'll have the, the ballots here to distribute in just a little bit. Um, and for all the rest of us, as we go through this week, as we leave this place, may we remember that in Christ Jesus we find truth. And when we learn to follow in his footsteps, to take seriously the reality of Christ, then we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now go in peace. You're dismissed.